podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. Uh, here's the thing about podcasts, okay? You can do them whenever you like. You don't need permission. You don't have to wait a week. Uh, Gary Lineker, he's uh, doing a very successful football podcast. It seemed to be quite a few additions per week. Now, a cynic would say that's to get advertising revenue, but uh, we're not cynics. Anyway, um, I wanted to do this one a bit earlier than normal because I wanted to look ahead to the German Masters, which is a great tournament and, of course, starts on Monday. And I wanted to look back uh, at the history of that tournament. We've also had a lot of emails. And, and firstly, an apology. Um, and Laura wrote in last week asking about uh, what music was used before the intro music at the Masters. And I very rashly uh, steamed in with the wrong answer. And Matt Owen, quite rightly, has written in. We've had a lot of emails. I say a lot. We've had two about this. Matt Owen's written in. He said, I just listened to the recent podcast and my proclivity for musical pedantry would never be at rest if it wasn't to point out the incorrect suggested song title used for the intro music at the recent Grand Prix. Well, it's actually, the, it may have been both tournaments. I think the Masters as well, uh, Matt. He says, it is correct that the track is likely by S Express, but it's actually called Theme from S Express, although this samples heavily from other artists, not least Rose Royce. It's not called Ride on Time. That was an early 90s Italian house outfit called Black Box. Quite right. Um, and Brian McGovern has also written in with this, with this, uh, well, castigation, I think we'd have to call it. Yeah, Ride on Time by Black Box, completely different song. Um, and Matt continues, while I'm here, if I may submit a late entry into your lousy snooker jokes item. <laughs> quite, well, quite, uh, quite definitive what you think about that. But anyway, this is the joke. Which snooker player do you call if your chicken is too wet? <laughs> now, just before we really reel the punchline, I like the idea that you would, that, that your chicken being too wet was a problem. <laughs> that could be solved by someone. But the answer to the question, which snooker player do you call if your chicken is too wet? Stephen Hendry. Now, that works better written down, because, of course, that's not how you pronounce his name, Matt. But anyway, thank you for the quite right to write in and uh, correct what I said. And thank you, Brian, as well. Now, we've had quite a few, uh, we'll get to the German master short. We've had quite a few emails. And Dave Farrow has written in. Now, Dave works for the media, and that means he outranks normal listeners. So we're going to go straight to him first. You may remember Dave uh, commentated uh, on the, the World Championship of Lockdown 2020. Uh, he did some big moments there. He did the Maximum by John Higgins. And indeed the Karen Wilson, uh, Anthony McGill finish in the semi-final. But anyway, Dave, a very well-known football commentator. Uh, works uh, for various uh, various bodies, TNT Sports amongst them, uh, which is where I see him down at Eurosport. Anyway, he says, uh, first time emailer here, as you know, I'm an enormous fan of the show. Thanks so much for all the great work you do, both here and on Eurosport, trying to make sense of the madness of this wonderful sport. I know I keep threatening to email you about Perry Mans. <laughs> what a threat. And that particular note will come, but is in the process of being reframed after a disturbing conversation I had with yourself and Neil Folds about Perry's alleged relationship with guns and cats. I'm investigating further and examining my feelings after Neil's revelations, but that particular email will come. Not that I expect you to await it with bated breath. Just to say, the key word there is alleged, OK? We don't know the exact truth of, of that story, but anyway, we'll move on. Uh, Dave says, seeing as we're moving into a US election year and the depressing march towards November has begun, I thought I would look closer at the relationship between World Snooker Championship and the US presidential election. I'll link that I know you and the rest of the listeners have been desperate to hear about. Okay, so here we go. I suppose the obvious starting point is the name Trump. I thought of Donald and Judd and wondered how many other snooker players shared their names with US presidents. January is a quiet time in the commentary world, so I finally find the time to investigate properly. Just before we carry on, it's, it's, <laughs> you think about sort of the, the most sort of, okay, they've got the same surname, but the least alike people in the world, Donald and Judd Trump would be a candidate, I think. 
<laughs> Very different characters. Uh, anyway, Dave continues. By my estimation, there are only three world champions who share their surname with the US president, namely Judd, brackets Donald Trump, Dennis, brackets Zachary Taylor, and Joe, brackets Lyndon or Andrew Johnson. There's a two-time finalist as well in the shape of Ali, brackets Jimmy Carter. Aside from that, the pickings are surprisingly slim, given how many seemingly common names are on both lists. Cliff, Gary and Kyron, brackets Woodrow Wilson, give us the only name with three examples, while David Taylor doubles up with Dennis and Tom, brackets Gerald Ford, takes the total number of US presidents slash crucible participants up to nine. I think I've counted right, but I will doubtless be corrected very quickly by an eagle-eared listener. I'm surprised there hasn't been a Jackson at the Crucible, or a Harrison, an Adams, a Buchanan. I'm equally curious that there hasn't been a President Smith or Jones. We've had both at the Crucible. Uh, there are a couple of sort of near misses in the case of Dave Martin, brackets Van Buren, and oh boy and Obama. <laughs> it's not really a near miss, is it? Oh boy and Obama, but anyway, we'll carry on. Uh, and there are one or two significant names in American political history on the Crucible list. A. Hamilton, A. Marshall, A. Wallace, and a couple of Robertsons. And of course, with the most relevance to this year's election, there's a judge. <laughs> See, satire as well. We've got it, we've got it all here. Uh, keep up the outstanding work. I'm going to move into running mates and beaten candidates next. So watch this extremely niche space. Well, thank you, Dave, and thank you for the extraordinary amount of work that's gone into that, because we did have last season, and this ties in with the, the preview coming up, we had a ranking final between uh, the, the, uh, one president and the person who succeeded him as president. So we had Tom Ford, brackets Gerald, played Ali Carter, brackets Jimmy, in the German Masters final. Carter winning, as he did back in 1976. So it's all there. This, this, this is a rich scene. And, you know, some people waste their lives. But Dave has looked into this, and it's all very interesting. Um, so we await, uh, we await more on that in the near future. Now, Adrian writes, he says, I hope this email finds you well. I've been following the discussions about the top ten snooker players, and it got me thinking, has anyone ever considered what an AI-like chat GPT might think about it? I'm guessing not, but anyway, you've continued with this, Adrian. So I decided to give it a shot and generated a list using chat GPT's insights. So this is the chat, this is what the, the, the AI bot has come up with, okay? And uh, Adrian's fed it into the, uh, the computer and this is what it's come up with. So I'm going to go from 10 to 1. This is what AI considers to be the 10 greatest snooker players of all time. Uh, number 10, Jimmy White. Number 9, Sean Murphy. Number 8, Ding Jun Wee. Number 7, Neil Robertson. Number six, Judd Trump. Uh, number five, John Higgins. Number four, Mark Selby. Number three, Steve Davis. Number two, Stephen Hendry. And number one, Ronnie O'Sullivan. Adrian says, it's fascinating to see how artificial intelligence perceives the game and its players. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this unique approach to creating a top ten list. Feel free to share it with others who might find it interesting. Well, the, always with any list, and we've had the Oscar nominations this week, with any list you look at the people not on it, and it seems that the Margot Robbie of this list is Mark Williams. He's not on the list. Now, Mark, I think, it would be in anyone's top ten. Not this computer's, but any any real person's top ten. Otherwise, it's a good list. I, don't, I think the names there are good. But um, it seems to skew very much uh, recently. You know, the people like Ray Reardon, Alex Higgins, who could have a claim in, in some people's lists, even Joe Davis, they're not mentioned. Uh, but Ronnie's top, Henry's second. A lot of people would have it that way. Um, so, yeah, that, that's that's how uh, 
the chatbot has it. And Adrian continued. Now, he didn't, wasn't just, it wasn't all serious because he's, he's also said, um, I'm having a bit of fun with ChatGPT and wanted to share some snooker themed jokes with you. ChatGPT was behind these ones. Okay, so these are, now the embarrassing about this is these jokes are better than the ones that human beings have come up with. And we still, I've still got a window open from, let's be honest, the stench created in that Christmas special, uh, from Phil. <laughs> with his jokes, one of which, as we know, was ecclesiastically incorrect. But anyway, this is what the uh, the chatbot has come up with, OK? Number one, what did the snooker ball say to the cue ball during their argument? You always try... You, <laughs> I'll do that again. What did the snooker ball say... I just read the punchline, it's quite funny. That's why, that's why that sort of threw me off. Uh, what did the snooker ball say to the cue ball during their argument? You always try to spin things around, but I'm not going to pot up with it anymore. Pot up with it anymore. Number two... Why did the snooker player bring a pencil to the game? Because he wanted to draw even with his opponent. You see, these are quite good. <laughs> Number three. How do snooker players stay cool under pressure? They always keep a cool head. Now, that's Q-C-U-E. Again, it's written down. It's funnier. Cool head. I figured a good, good laugh is always welcome. And hey, these can't be worse than some of the others I've heard. Well, <laughs> thank you, Adrian, for that uh, rather backhanded compliment. In fact, it wasn't a compliment at all. Going back to Dave Farrow's email, actually, something's been been bothering me about it. Now, you might say <laughs> a lot of things that might bother it. But anyway, he says here, I'm curious there hasn't been a President Smith or Jones. We've had both at the Crucible. Have we had a Smith at the Crucible? I'm trying to think of one. Uh, have we had a Smith play at the Crucible? I'm not sure we have. Now, you know, I, I don't want to cast aspersions on this, but this is how Watergate began, isn't it? Uh well, I, I, I can't think of one. Maybe maybe there's an obvious one. John Smythe, of course, is a referee, but that was a different spelling and indeed a different name. Now, in the last edition, we discussed, uh, or I discussed, the uh, the new tournament in Riyadh in Saudi Arabia. Ina Butler has written in about this. He said, I think your comments on the tournament in Saudi were very well made. i just add one more point. This tournament is still a World Snooker Tour event. The issue I would have with the alleged sports washing from those parts is the breakaway tours being set up there, attempting to lure the best players away from domestic leagues in exchange for high dollar values. It makes it feel, frankly, grubby. But that's not what is happening with the snooker event, and that's a good thing. Well, it's a good point, actually. I hadn't thought of that, but it, you're right. It is uh, as part of the, the tour, rather than a sort, of, uh, a sort of grab, a cash grab by people going over to uh, sort of a rival situation, I suppose. So, I mean, that's, that's something I hadn't thought of, but you're quite right. Now, we've had a lot of um, discussion about the commentary earpieces, um, which is good to... It's good to hear this stuff, because, of course... It's not something that certainly I would sort of consider, but ordinary snooker fans going along um, have had an issue with the commentary of pieces, the price of them, the reliability of them. And we've had an email here from James Hannaford, who wants to talk about this. He says, I've listened to your podcast and talk about the radio. I had the same thoughts as some of your listeners. I went to York for the final and took my white WST 2022-23 earpiece. So this is from last season. And they, they are locked to two frequencies. I asked if they would work. They told me it would not, and I would need to buy another black 2324 version as they are locked to the correct frequency that they changed to this time around in York. I questioned this, and in fairness, and it's fairness and environmental credentials with the seller and other staff. Blank faces taking up the world's new couture, I was told. The white one did, in fact, not work in York, but the black one did tune in. So it was, as they told me, they will work for only that season, and by fixing the frequency, they can tune to and then change it each season. Season they forced into buying a new one. Great business. I, I then went to the 2024 Masters and checked if last season's white one uh, 
and checked last season's white one, and it did not work as I thought. However, I found and took an old one from a few years ago, a Betfair yellow one, which was not fixed to a channel and scanned. At the Masters, the latest season black one worked, but also the old yellow one scanned to pick up the commentary as well as the black one. So the upshot is, if Wilson and Couture fixed it so they can sell a new one each year by fixing the channels and then changing from last season's over the previous one with scanning. Outrageous, according to James. On the Masters seats, they're awful. Far too narrow. York was much better, and that inch makes a lot. So that's the first one on the commentary um, on the commentary thing, on the um, earpieces. And uh, we had another one from Paul Regan. Uh, hello again, Dave. Is it too late to say Happy New Year? I would say yes, Paul, actually, uh, because we're nearly in February. But anyway, thank you for considering that uh, that um, that greeting. He's, Paul says, at the risk of becoming a regular, here's email number two. Sent with thanks for your recent response to my questions about commentary and punditry. I had this in mind as I watched the Masters this month. You're right that for every person, like me, who enjoys technical detail from commentators... It's probably someone wishing for more silence. And fate, it seems, dealt me this alternative perspective at Alexandra Palace. It was during the Trump-Wilson first rounder. My first, now, there's a, there's a meeting between two presidents as well, Trump-Wilson. Anyway, uh, my first ever live tournament experience. In the rush to get coffee, we forgot completely about queuing for radios, which meant that about ten minutes into the first frame, I realised we were alone in our an analysis of the game. Initially, I was annoyed with myself. This wasn't helped by the faint hubbub of nearby earpieces. It was like being haunted by a mumbling John Parrott, whose weird torment was never was to never quite make himself heard. But after a while, I settled into my inner monologue and realised I was watching the game much more intently. Perhaps I'm too lazy in front of the telly, too content to be entertained by the opinions of experts to have any of my own. Too easily distracted by the second screen I reach for to see what the idiots are saying on Twitter about the size of the pockets or the white soles on Ronnie's trainers. Must stop doing that. Not once at Ali Pali did it cross my mind to check my phone. The only distraction was a slightly dazzling spotlight and the slow, painful mumbling of my ass on the arena seats. Now, these, these are Paul's words. I'm just reading them out. I promised myself I'd save you that cliched feedback, but after a, after a 6-5 needle match, those chairs left quite an impression. So it seems the seating at Ali Pali, and again, every seat was filled, I must say that, but we don't hear many good things about it, it has to be said. Anyway... Paul continues, discomfort aside, we were absorbed by the competition in front of us, watching snooker on our own with 2,000 other people. This meant by the time we sipped our first post-match pint in the pub, we each shared unique perspectives to piece together our own opinion of the game. Returning home later, though, I couldn't help but check Discovery Plus and iPlayer to see whether you commentary folks thought the same things as, as we did. Invariably, you brought a fresh and obviously better informed perspective. I don't know about that, but anyway... I suppose the perfect, it continues, I suppose the perfect balance behind the microphone is just enough chat to sprinkle knowledge, but insulated by moments of quiet to allow us all to think. Pretty much then exactly what you said in response to my previous email, and why, as I can see, as I can now see, you cite Clive Everton as such an inspiration. Anyway, I'm not quite sure what we've achieved here. <laughs> well, that could be the motto of the podcast, never mind, never mind this email, but anyway. He continues, that's all for now. I did have a fabulously niche, Q-related question I plan to drop in among this natter, but I fear I may have blathered on too long. Maybe next time. Thanks of always for the podcast, in particular for those brief bonus episodes previewing the, cl the closing matches. An inspired idea. Well, thank you, Paul. Um, okay, so, well, the commentary, I mean, commentary's been discussed a lot, probably too much, but you, you've given your very um, interesting thoughts on it there. But in terms of the radio, look, I can understand why people feel chagrined, if that's a word, about having to... Having to um, when it's season 
But I don't. I actually don't think it's unreasonable um, to be to have one just for the season because obviously, otherwise, if everyone just brought their old ones, it would actually they'd lose money on it. You know, they they, they are a business and they do have to make money. So it would be. I think it would be wrong to charge for a new one at every tournament. Clearly, that wouldn't be right. But to have one per season is that really so bad? Well, it's easy for me to say I'm not paying for them. I understand that. I suppose the problem is if you just go to one event per season, you are paying for. You're not getting much value out of it. You're just getting it for that tournament. So I do see that side of it. I'm not quite sure what the solution is, because you know it's, you get these bags for life at the supermarket. I'm not sure a radio for life. Uh, that would thus generate no new income would be, from a business perspective, a very attractive proposition for World Snooker. So I, I can kind of see it from their side, but also, I, I, you know, it, it's not cheap to go to anything these days. You know, you've got to buy the, the ticket, you've got to get yourself there, feed yourself, water yourself, and then you're buying these things on top to enhance the enjoyment. It, it, it stacks up. So I do understand that as well. Um, but, uh, it's interesting that a correspondent there, James, an old radio from years ago, seemed to work. I'm not, I'm not uh, suggesting people should take them, but but uh, it's it's interesting information. Let's put it that way. Now, uh, the last edition of the podcast, there was quite a bit of discussion about Ronnie O'Sullivan. We had a quite a stinging critique of him from Leon, and Alex Whiting in Maidstone, Kent, here, has written in. He says, "I'm writing as I'm currently listening to the last episode, mainly in response to Leon's myriad criticisms of Ronnie O'Sullivan. I see this a lot, especially on X." That's Twitter in old money. Uh, there is a real resentment of Ronnie for perceived arrogance and indifference, especially from fans who feel he should be 100% affable and available with his time. The he would be nothing without fans idea. So I myself who suffers from similar mental health issues, social cues and stressful situations with being surrounded by people are highly triggering. And generally I feel Ronnie is very fair with fans. As for the accusation of arrogance with the young steward of the Masters, I found that quite amusing and really don't feel Ronnie was rude to the young man. In my opinion, it's a very British thing of not liking the great champions or the great champion not being the idealised version people want. Ronnie is who he is and the sport benefits from his profile. My partner has recently been turned on to the game after watching the Ronnie documentary. Anyway, anyway, I apologise for the length of the email. Ronnie will be fine whatever my defence of his character. Thanks for the podcast. Well, the email was a perfect length, actually, Alex. Um, I think you, you, come, across, you, you um, come up with something here very interesting you, when you say... Um, in my opinion, it's a very British thing, the champion not being the idealised version people want. And that's very true, I think, because someone like Ronnie O'Sullivan, he's a bit of a canvas for people to sort of paint their own picture, if you like. And, yeah, you're right, they want him to be a certain thing. And he can only be who he is, for good and bad. And to quote uh, Paul McCartney and Stevie Wonder, there's good and bad in everyone. Um, a little ebony and ivory reference there. Uh, yeah, and, it's, you know... <laughs> Put it this way, right? Say you meet a celebrity on the street, okay? Let's, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'll use a dead celebrity so I can't libel anyone. You meet Frankie Howard on the street. Now that's the one for the teenagers, Frankie Howard, okay? And you ask him for a selfie, and he tells you to, and I, I won't mince my words, bugger off, okay? Now, what's what you're going to do? You're going to go home. You're going to say, I met that Frankie Howard. He was really rude to me. But what you don't know is he might have had some terrible news just two minutes before you've gone up to him. You know, horrible news. You're not in any position to talk to anyone. You're trying to get home to digest it. In other words, we don't know what's going on in people's lives. And if you meet someone once, uh, briefly, that, that is not any indication of what they are all the time. It's just what they're like in that moment. It could be good, it could be bad. And as I say, Ronnie, you know, has to deal, when he comes to tournaments, has to deal with the pressure of being the most famous and sought-after person in that building. 
Um, now, a lot of people would say, well, so what? He's paid a fortune for it, but it can't be easy. And I think he's a very different person away from tournaments. Um, I'm not here to defend him. I'm not here to criticise him. I'm just here to pass on what I feel, having been around him. I think a lot of players will tell you they don't really know him. I think he tries to sort of stay apart from the other players, but that's nothing new. Steve Davis did that. Stephen Hendry did that. And there, <laughs> there is something specific that links those three players. They're all the best of their time. Um, so... Anyway, thanks for writing in, Alex, and uh, I'm sure a lot of people will have their own views. Now, Lee Wall, meantime, has been to the World Grand Prix. We'd like to have, we'd like to hear from people who've been to tournaments. So let's hear from Lee. Lee's from Liverpool. Uh, so he's come down to Leicester. He said, uh, I took a trip to Leicester for the World Grand Prix semi-finals. Thought I'd let you know about my experience. My great nana lives in Leicestershire, so I took the opportunity to visit her on the Friday and Saturday mornings before heading to the snooker and also sampling some culinary delights. I watched a bit of O'Sullivan Gary Wilson on the TV with great nana Flo. She's 99 and not a follower of the sport, but she did say she thought Ronnie was a bit miserable. <laughs> she also mentioned that billiards does not seem as popular as it used to be. When I left, I asked if she wanted me to leave the TV on so she could watch the rest of the match. She politely declined. <laughs> so... Well, Flo, and she, you know, 99, you're absolutely right to sort of have your priorities, and, that, and she's clearly not, not that interested in watching. But anyway, Lee was. He said, I arrived at Leicester Railway Station and walked to my accommodation, which was close to the venue. I did not see anything en route to indicate, uh, to indicate a snooker event was taking place. Even one billboard of Mark Selby, Ronnie O'Sullivan, or Judd Trump in the station might have helped sell a few extra tickets for the weekday sessions. Again, when walking to the venue that evening, it was poorly signposted and there was little to indicate the snooker was happening. I did recall from your podcast that you need to walk down memory lane to enter the venue, which was a genuine help, so thank you for that. Just on that, Lee, you're right, it wasn't well signposted. A couple of people stopped me actually asking me how to get into the venue because it is quite a small, it's a narrow lane. Um, it is signposted, but it's not, you have to kind of look for it. Uh, that's perfectly true. Uh, anyway, uh, we continue, we continue. Uh, sorry, yes, I'm just just getting the email. Yeah, here we go. She says, upon entering the concourse, it seemed a bit bare and could have done with some more seating. The staff were friendly, and I was pleasantly surprised not to be searched. I only had a bottle of water on me, but maybe I will take something a bit stronger next time. I did not bother perusing the merchandise, so can't comment on whether it was a load of old tat or top-quality gear. When I went into the auditorium, I was very impressed. It's set up to look good on TV, but feels very snazzy as a spectator as well. I was sat quite high up on both days, but the sight lines were very good and the screens were handy for the odd time when the player or referee was blocking my view of the balls. It would also have been nice to have replays on the screens, but I was just about able to squint into the ITV studio and watch those on their big telly instead. Phil Seymour did an effective job as MC and the crowd were enthusiastic and well behaved. The odd person shouting out, but nothing too out of order. It's impossible to create the same atmosphere as the Crucible Theatre in a multi-purpose arena like the... Like the Morning side, but I was pre generally pretty impressed. Judd Trump v Chao Peng was an enjoyable match with the crowd getting behind Chao's valiant attempt to make it a good contest. But Ronnie O'Sullivan's performance on Saturday was something special. Watching it from my bird's eye view, there was both ruthlessness and beauty in the way O'Sullivan swiftly cleared the table frame after frame. There were crackles of excitement. Excuse me. Uh, there were crackles of excitement and then sheer joy as we realised we were watching a sublime performance. The world's greatest ever snooker player touching the highest level of excellence on that particular evening. It was easily the greatest snooker I've seen live and almost certainly the best display I've witnessed in any sport. And I've watched York City play football on multiple occasions. Although, funnily enough, Ding's break to win his frame may have been the best of the lot in that match. 
The early finish on Saturday meant I had time to pop to Chef's Flavour next to the arena for a lovely curry. You may have been there, Dave. Well, I have, actually. I've been to Chef's Flavour many times. It's a lovely place. Um, a nice, very friendly staff. They did once bring out complimentary starters, which ended up on the bill. But that we'll leave that to one side. It was a mistake, and all was sorted out. So, uh, a very big fan of Chef's Flavour. Do, do check it out if you're in the area. Uh, Chef's Flavour is a little Indian, just on memory lane. Uh, and he continues, Great Nana Flo's cooking is not as good as it was. And it felt a bit mean to steal some of, her, uh, some of her cans of Guinness from the fridge. So I relied on local establishments for sustenance. As well as chef flavour... I think we should get Nana Flo on the podcast. She sounds brilliant. Anyway, as well as chef flavour, I would also recommend Four Seasons for a Chinese, where I overheard a waiter talking excitingly about having met Stephen Hendry. Crispy dosa for a vegetarian in Indian, weekend breakfast buffet, and taste social in Market Harbour for possibly the best value lunch I've ever had. For drink, the beer house in Market Harbour is very good as well as the Real L Classroom, the L Wagon and the Globe, all fairly close to the arena. Seems you've visited quite a few pubs in a couple of days, Lee, but we don't judge. That's fine. He says, to conclude, the Snooker in Leicester gets a pretty big thumbs up from me. I hope it's back there next season. Well, that's Lee Wall on his trip to Leicester, which sounded uh, enjoyable. He got to see the Ronnie Ding match and uh, experience the local eateries and indeed, and I, I say this advisedly, drinkeries. But uh, thank you for that. We always like to hear from people who've been to tournaments. The one thing I did feel on Sunday, and obviously you can't know this in advance, but the first session was very quick. It was over by half past three. I came out of the venue and people were sort of streaming into the city centre because there's nothing put on. I mean, there's the queue zone, but the fact is it's three and a half hours till the evening session. I do wonder if, and maybe you'd have to pay a premium for this on the ticket, but maybe something could be put on in the venue. You've got people like Ken, Stephen Hendry there. Q&A or something, exhibition, whatever it is, just half an hour even, you know, just as an extra bit of value. Otherwise, people are just hanging around. Um, again, nobody's fault because you can't know how long the snooker will last, but it's a long time between sessions and, and you've got to basically entertain yourself. And OK, you can have something to eat and something to drink, but it's still a long time. And I noticed when the doors were opened at six o'clock, a lot of people took their seats in the arena. It's an hour before play starts, but basically got nothing else to do. And it's warm inside, so they just sort of sat there. Um, they paid quite a few, you know, quite a lot of money for these tickets. So I just felt, I mean, thankfully they get, got to see a great match, close match. But you know, it, I, I just wondered if something could have been put on. Maybe that's something to look look at in the future. Obviously, it would cost money, I know. But uh, anyway, that's just my view. Vincent writes, a long time listener. I trust you're well. Do you agree with me? We should consider rotating the three major tournaments: UK Masters and World Championship, more globally. Uh, the answer isn't going to be no, Vincent, but I will read the rest of it. He says, the UK Championship aside, it seems peculiar for a sport we're trying to globe globally, and all three majors are held in England. Could we not consider alternating the UK Championship between the Crucible, York and Alexandra Palace? This would then free us up to alternate the World Championship and Masters between Asia and mainland Europe. There are wonderful venues in places such as Germany and China. It feels a shame no majors are held in these regions. I really think it would help grow the sport internationally. A bit radical, I know, but what do you think? The problem is, I mean, my view is we should have big tournaments in the places you mentioned, but they should be they should be their own events. The fact is, the BBC have the broadcast contract for these three tournaments. They don't want them outside the UK because the production costs would be much higher, and would probably make it economically inviolable to do. Um, and also, these tournaments work in the venues they're in. The Masters is a great success in Alexandra Palace. Obviously, the World Championship is established at the Crucible. We don't know how long that's going to last now, but. The fact is it's established there. The UK is established in York. So 
I don't see any reason. Why would taking the UK Championship to the Alexandra Palace make it better when we have a tournament that works perfectly there, one table tournament that's ideal for that venue? I don't get this argument move, moving the venues when the venues already work. Now there's talk of upgrading to bigger venues, that's different. But I, I would love to see, you know, big events in the places you've mentioned, but let's, let them have their own events. Don't, don't sort of transport another tournament there. Um, and also, you know, in future years, who's to say that these three tournaments will be regarded as the majors? If there is a ranking event in Saudi Arabia next season and it's been heavily talked about, it's quite likely the, the prize money will far outstrip the UK Championship and the Masters. So that's a major then, isn't it? <laughs> you know, if the, if the um, ranking list is based on prize money, then... If the prize money is bigger than those, than, well, the Masters isn't a ranking event, but the UK Championship, if the prize money is bigger than the UK, it's a bigger tournament, just by definition. Um, so, thanks for the idea. I, I personally don't agree. A lot of people, I'm sure, do, though. Adam Ahmed, I, I, I'm not going to read this out, Adam. Uh, thanks for the email. Adam was watching Ronnie O'Sullivan's match with Alfie Burden at the qualifying uh, on the streaming, and he, the audio began early, and he heard one of the officials swearing. Um, and he said that, uh, he said, I never would have expected this behaviour from an authority figure such as a referee, no less in a gentleman's sport of snooker. Um, I thought I would make you aware of it as he negatively affected the viewing experience for me. If you don't, I'm not going to name the referee, I don't think it's fair to, because the, the, actually the audio shouldn't have been live. I'm not saying they should have been swearing either, but I think it would be unfortunate to drop him in it. But I have passed it on to World Snooker Tour, they're aware of it, and they've reminded the officials that their microphones might be live you know, before the actual match begins. Now, before we move on to the, uh, before we move on to the German Masters, got a couple more emails to go through. Jeff, I'm going to say Hormans, Hormans, huge Stuka fan from Belgium here. Apologies, Jeff, if I've got your name. I think I'm on um, solid ground with Jeff. I think that's probably correct. I don't, he says, big snooker fan from Belgium here. I don't always get the chance to enjoy British commentary here, unfortunately. But when I do, I always enjoy your work. Well, thank you. He says, I recently discovered your great podcast. I will definitely be listening from now on. I wanted to share a thought I've had about how flukes are handled in snooker. Although sometimes exciting with the crowd, flukes can be frustrating for the other player and can often influence matches a great deal. What I was thinking about is whether a call pocket rule, as in pull, would work in snooker. This could be unspoken most of the time, like it is now for calling colours. It might take away too much of the game, though. I'd like to hear your thoughts about it. Thanks for the podcast, and take care. Well, Jeff, this is nothing new. I mean, players going back have uh, suggested this. I mean, we're an entertainment business, and let's be honest, flukes are very entertaining. They're horrible for players on the receiving end. You're right, they can turn matches. Um, but very often, you know, I mean, we mentioned Dave Farrah commentating on Colin Wilson and Anthony McGill. Now, a lot of people remember that decider, for Kyron Fluke in the green. And people will tell you to this day that's why he won. But actually, McGill, if you scroll back about 10 minutes, he had the last red over the pocket. Okay, so he had it in his hands to win that match and he ended up, I think he snooked himself on the yellow. I mean, obviously it was a very tense, nervous frame. Anything could happen. But he didn't actually lose because of the fluke. You could, you could go back to any point in that frame and, and identify another moment. Um, there's also an issue in terms of nominating the pocket because you can flute the ball into the same pocket you've nominated. Let's say you're taking on, I don't know, well, the green into, the, into what we know as the green pocket at pace, okay? You're playing it at pace. 
it rattles the jaws of the green pocket, goes along the bulk cushion, rattles the jaws of the yellow pocket, comes back along the bulk cushion, drops into the green pocket. Now, it's, it's gone into the pocket you've nominated, but it's still a fluke. So I'm minded not to change that. I, it, it is, we think of snooker as a professional sport, which of course it is, but it's also a game. And in games, stuff happens. And of course the great test in snooker is how you deal with fortune when it comes your way, when it doesn't come your way. Do you make good on the fluke? Do you dwell on your bad luck? Some players are better at that than others, of course. Um, so personally, I wouldn't change it, but thank you, Jeff, for that suggestion. Now, David Gastrell, he says, please forgive... Well, you say the direct message is an email, so it's fine. He says, we have met in the lift at the St Paul's Mercure immediately after Ronnie's seventh. That sounds kind of clandestine, but I, I think it was completely innocent from memory. Uh, there's a guy in Ireland complaining he's only just received his copy of Snooker Scene from December. Um, he's attached pictures of, of this complaint. He said, I should say, this is the Snooker Scene podcast. I no longer work for the magazine, so I can't really help on that score. Um... But hopefully um, that will be resolved uh, in due course. I know that there's various problems. I saw Rudy Bounds um, from Dutch Eurosport saying that because of increased postal charges, which he, he pins on Brexit, um, it's costing him a fortune to subscribe now. So I don't know what, what the way around that is, but hopefully it can be resolved. David continues, uh, uh, whilst I'm on, many thanks for all you do for our beautiful game. I love the podcast. Especially enjoyed your Christmas link up with Nick and Phil from Talking Snooker. I'm a Crucible veteran of 30-plus years and a good friend of Kelly Barker. Kelly has very kindly obtained a full set of returns for every for every session of the World Final from my partner, Lindsay, and myself. So if possible, give her a thank you from both of us on a future podcast episode. Well, I'm happy to do that because uh, Kelly is a great fan and, and I'm sure he's delighted that other people such as yourself can enjoy the great game as well. He says, as well as a key sports obsessive, high break 132, a league eight ball pool and snooker for 38 years, I'm actually a table fitter. I recover English pool tables all over the UK. So whilst driving, I get a chance to listen to you, the 147 podcast and talking snooker. I actually do all the recovers in England for Michaela Tab and black ball tables. Fortunately, I live in Chesterfield, so literally 12 miles from the mecca of our sport. I love the coverage on Eurosport. It's excellent. I hope you can sort out the delivery problems for the Republic of Ireland. Thanks again for all you do. Well, I can't sort out those problems because they're literally nothing to do with me. But as I say, hopefully they can be uh, they can be sorted out by people whose uh, whose responsibility that is. Now, I'm not Kay Burley from Sky News, but an email has come in as I've been recording, so I've not even read this, but it's from Stephen, uh, who, who I met with his partner Michelle in the uh, in the Graduate, and. Uh, I haven't read this, so it could, it could be hugely libelous. I'd be surprised, because I, I remember Stephen has been a nice chap, but anyway, I'm going to read it out. It says, My partner Michelle kindly organised my first ever snooker coaching session recently, which at the ripe old age of 47, I probably should have organised for myself a few decades ago, as despite playing occasionally, I've remained utterly hopeless, with no signs of progress whatsoever over the years. The session w- was with the 2002 LG Cup winner and former world number 12, Chris, the Edinburgh Rock Small. Chris is a lovely guy, personal, patient, and as you'd expect, extremely knowledgeable about the game. As it was my first coaching session, we spent two hours covering the basics, including what height to address the cue ball, hand position and distance from the cue ball, check pause, feathering stance, lining up, walking into the shot, etc. I was nervous before the session, but Chris made me feel at ease and was at no point patronising or condescending. I've taken a lot from the session and look forward to implementing what I've learned. I'll certainly be returning later in the year for another session. I mentioned to Chris that Michelle and I listened to your podcast. Chris recalls crossing paths with you on several occasions 
and that you were one of the nicest people working in snooker during his time as a professional. Uh, before a spinal condition ended his playing career. I think he may have got me confused with someone else, but that's nice to hear. Um, Michelle and I would love to hear your memories of Chris as a player. Chris described himself as solid and mentioned that snooker announcer Alan Hughes gave him the Edinburgh Rock nickname. Alan was an announcer that Chris thought was even better than Rob Walker, whom he holds in high regard. Praise indeed for both gentlemen. Uh, and there is a picture attached um, of Chris, in fact, coaching uh, Stephen. You look good for 47, Stephen, if you don't mind me saying. Uh, anyway, um, yes, Chris Small was a fantastic player. I mean, he qualified for the Crucible uh, in 1992, when I think he was only 18, and he has won, and it'll be in the Almanac, I think he won 11 matches, or something like the record, because in those days there were 700 professionals, he won a lot of matches to qualify, um, and I think he beat Doug Mountjoy in the first round, if memory serves, so straight away, you know, he's clearly a great prospect, he was renowned for being tough, I mean, solid, I think he's underselling it, he was a tough player, very difficult to beat, um, had great determination, and a very good temperament, as I recall. He, he slowed up over the years because he had this back condition. It wasn't his fault. Ankylosing spondylitis, it was called. I remember I was, you know, you hear that and you think, how do you spell it? But I'd written it so much, ankylosing spondylitis, it came as second nature. Obviously very uh, difficult to deal with. He used to have, have inje pain in uh, painkiller injections just to play. It was very tough, uh, but he battled through, won the LG Cup. That was a big moment, beat Alan McManus in the final. There in Preston in 2002, as you mentioned. That was a massive event. That was on Network BBC in the days when we were told there were four major events, not three. Um, and that's only 20 years ago. But no, Chris was a fantastic player. I, me I remember, though, because he slowed up quite often, his matches kind of were the last off. I remember they had the, uh, the world qualifying in Torquay in 2003. Uh, this was the final round of qualifying at the Palace Hotel. And uh, his was the last match off. And <laughs> there were four tables. And it was going on so long, they started to de-rig the other tables, basically. And obviously, there was a lot of noise going on, which is not ideal when you're trying to qualify for the Crucible. And uh, as Chris put it, uh, they wouldn't have done this to Stephen Hendry. I remember that was his quote. But nice guy, terrific player. Um, shame that you know his professional career had to end when it did through illness. Not his fault. I think he would have won more tournaments because he was very, as I say, he was very hard to beat. And he'd established himself in the top 16. I'm glad to hear that he's still involved in snooker. He's still coaching. Um, and uh, if, you, if you have any more lessons, please pass on my regards. And, uh, you know, it's nice to think that, that these people are still around the snooker world because, uh, you know, it, it, it's in their blood, isn't it? And, uh, you know, it's nice that although his career had to end when it did, for the reasons we've explained, he's still passing on his vast knowledge, and he does have vast knowledge, to other people. So uh, all the best to Chris and uh, thank you very much uh, for that email, Stephen. We've got one more to come and then we'll move on to the German Masters. So this is from Michael Waring, who runs the Snooker Hub website. He said, back in July 2023, you had Tom Rowell on the pod. Now, Tom is the uh, communications head at World Snooker. He said he promised better communication from uh, WST with the fans. I realise an organisation like WST will get hundreds of rubbish questions, but I've seen I've seen some good ones asked of them on X, brackets, Twitter. What we don't seem to have is any kind of response at all from World Snooker Tour. For example, on Tuesday the 24th of January, WST proudly announced that the qualifiers in Barnsley were sold out. But, but when I looked at the tickets for Wednesday today, there, were no, there was no information. I applied to WST to ask if there were tickets available for Wednesday, but I didn't get a reply. Would it be possible 
for you to remind Tom Rowell of his promise. And on a future pod, could you tell us what he said, please? That's assuming you get a reply, of course. It does seem to be that the general consensus among snooker fans is that WST simply do not communicate with or even listen to the fans. On a more positive note, I thought your Masters episodes during the event were great. And I do hope you get the time to do similar at other events. Well, thank you, Michael. Um, I think I, there's two sides of this. I think I agree that reasonable questions ideally would get reasonable answers. But on the other side, there's two things, really. One is, you know, the guys who run the social media, that is not their full-time job. That is part of their job. They spend a, a lot of time doing other things, editing videos, doing graphics, doing all sorts of things that take time. So it, it's not necessarily practical to monitor every sort of, you know, in, inquiry they get on social media. But I think the more the more kind of um, substantial reason that maybe the replies are not forthcoming is they get a hell of a lot of abuse, and that's just a fact. I actually went on, I thought, I'm going to look at a random post from this week and look at the replies. I don't normally read the replies um, on their posts for, for the reason I'm about to explain. So I looked at, they did an interview with Ali Carter, who's the defending champion at the German Masters, talking about defending his title next week. Perfectly re- valid piece of content. Perfectly reasonable thing to put up. Quite interesting interview. They had ten responses. Seven were abusive. Okay, so why would those guys want to spend any time going through those replies? I'm sure I'm not including you in this, Michael. I'm sure your question was perfectly reasonably asked and respectfully asked. But if seventy percent of what you're receiving is moronic abuse, why would you read any of it? I wouldn't. I'd ignore it. I think if people want interaction then it cuts both ways you have to be if you want respectful treatment you have to act respectfully yourself and they get a hell of a lot of people going on there insulting them insulting by the way young guys at a university often their first job passionate enthusiastic trying to do well trying to do their best they're not making the decisions that are frustrating people they're also not responsible for the frustrations in these people people's lives and nothing to do with snooker that caused them to act that way in the first place. They're just trying to do their job. So if anyone out there thinks it's it makes you big to bully a 22-year-old running the social media account for World Snooker, I disagree. It doesn't. It's actually quite pathetic. Okay? So if you go on there, and okay, there are things that are frustrating, but if you go on there and start typing out some insult to one of those guys who run the social media... Just maybe stop and think. Would you like that message to be sent to your wife? Would you like it to be sent to your sister, to your boyfriend, to your brother? The answer is probably no. And if the answer is no, don't send it to them. Now, that's one side of it. The other side is a question like the one you asked. Yeah, it should get a reply. But the problem is they've got to weed out all the all the crap, basically, that they get as well. If there wasn't the crap there, maybe they would be more likely to reply to reasonable queries such as your own, Michael. Um, so it cuts both ways. If people want to be treated with respect by World Snooker Tour, they have to treat them with respect as well. We know we're all adults after all. Um, and what I notice is a lot of these people, when they come to tournaments, they tend to act like proper people rather than like the sort of things you see online. Um, I do feel that there could be, uh, I think you are right in your general point. I think there could be more communication with the fans. I made a suggestion, which has been completely ignored, needless to say, um, that in certain tournaments, such as the Home Nations, rather than bringing in, for example, Judd Trump when he's won a match and asking three or four, let's be honest, pretty bland questions, 
get people, snooker fans, to tweet in their questions to ask him. That's a way of, you hear your name read out, you hear your question read out, it's direct from the fans rather than just from someone from World Snooker Tour. That's an idea. I think on their podcast, they could do a lot more to answer emails. They always seem to say, we've had a lot of emails, we'll answer them at a future point, but then (laughs) that, that never changes. It's always a future point. There must be a lot of unanswered emails. Why not just do one episode, just answering emails? Why not? At least then fans would feel they're being listened to, they're being respected. I think that's all people want, really. So I appreciate your point, but I do think the problem on on the specific platform you mentioned um, is just the 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 nature of the comments they get. You know, I mean, if if seventy percent of the comments you receive are insulting you, why would you continue to read them? And the problem is, reasonable queries such as your own then get lost amongst all of that. Um, you know, we can actually just all operate properly. We don't need, doesn't need to be this constant stream of, ab- of abuse. You know, as I say, these are young guys. They're all good guys. They're all doing their best. They don't deserve to be confronted with that every day. It's not right and it should stop. And if it does stop, maybe then they'd be more inclined to answer reasonable queries. Anyway, we move on to the German Masters. Now, this is uh, a tournament worth celebrating, I think. It's made really by the fans there in Berlin. Uh, there was various tournaments in Germany, sort of pre-Barry Hearn, if you like, pre the Barry Hearn era at World Snooker Tour, but it was established in 2011, and of course, Brandon Parker, the trophy's named after Brandon, he was instrumental in bringing all this together. He ran events in Germany, Prime events and the Paul Hunter Classic, uh, prior to Barry taking over, and then with the Thomas Sessal from Dragon Stars Promotions, promoted the tournament and took it to the Tempodrome, an imposing building in the centre of Berlin, uh, literally imposing, you can sort of see it from miles around. Just a great amphitheatre, sort of reminiscent of the Wembley Conference Centre in terms of the layout, although the, the atmosphere is a bit more respectful. And that's the thing there, the fans there love snooker. Germany, there's not huge participation in snooker, but they love watching. They were educated for many years by Rolf Kalb, German Eurosports uh, senior commentator, who, uh, I mean, you, Rolf in the 80s used to send away for tapes of snooker when there was no snooker on German TV, but when Eurosports started up, in 1989, he became the commentator. He's still going strong 35 years on and will be the MC uh, at the tournament again this year. So there's a great warmth when you go there from the fans and that really transfers to the players. They all love playing there and certainly if you can get through to the weekend, then it becomes really special because that's one table. Obviously, it's multi-table up until then. But to get to walk out, I know even referees have done it as well and they, they feel the same. You walk out to that crowd that ovation, that warmth, that love, frankly. And it doesn't matter who it is either. Obviously, they have their favourites, but they just like watching snooker. And uh, they've seen a lot of great snooker over the years. Um, 2011 was the first. Now, Mark Williams, of course, at this point, been in the doldrums a little bit. He hadn't won a tournament for a while, but uh, he beat Mark Selby 9-7 in the first final there. I remember the, the ovation at the end. And Mark Williams is not, not a character to sort of... Um, you know, become over emotional, but you could see it meant a lot to him, not just to win a tournament again, but in that atmosphere. And I think that tournament was probably kind of, in microcosm, the way that the game had suddenly moved forward under Barry. Suddenly the bad old days had gone. You know, we had more tournaments, we had a great sort of enthusiasm back, passion back. People were feeling good about snooker and the players were feeling good about it again. And that was underlined really by that event that kind of illustrated, oh, things have changed, things have got better. Things have moved forward. 2012, Ronnie O'Sullivan beat Steve McGuire 9-7. That was a terrific final, but it was more a significant 
moment for Ronnie, actually, because he'd been in the doldrums, undoubtedly, at that time. If you go back uh, and look at his at his record, he actually hadn't won a ranking event for two and a half years. It was the Shanghai Masters 2009. He was sort of drifting a little bit at that point, and obviously you know, people are quick to sort of point the finger and say, well, maybe your best years are behind you. Now, little did we know, because <laughs> um, that was actually 2012, that was his 23rd ranking success. And of course, just last week, he won his 41st. So he was kind of about halfway there at that point. He was 4-0 down to Andrew Higginson, as I recall, in the opening round, and, you know, heading for a, a heavy defeat. Managed to pull himself out of that and managed to win the tournament. And then, just a few weeks later, a few months later, he won the World Championship again for what would have been uh, fourth time. And uh, really, that was uh, that was a turning point, I think. He was, he'd um, started with Steve Peters at that point, Dr. Steve Peters, consulting him and getting advice from him about how to handle the mental pressure of snooker. And as we know, things changed dramatically. Uh, 2013, Ali Carter uh, beating Marco Fu, 9-6. And again, that was a big moment for Ali. You know, to, He'd won a couple of tournaments before that, but to experience that great sort of wave of, of, sort of love from the crowd, um, bearing in mind, obviously, as we know, the, the ill health that he was suffering from, the Crohn's disease, um, and then it was just after that that he, of course, had the, had the cancer. Um, but so that was a that was a great moment again. And of course, he went on, as we know, to retain uh, regain the title last year. Uh, Twenty fourteen Ding. Now this was in the he beat Judd Trump nine five. This was in that golden season. People kind of forget now because Ding has become maybe a little bit more erratic in terms of his form and when he sort of pops up. But back then, that was an extraordinary season. He won, he won five titles. This was the fourth of them. He'd won Shanghai Masters, Indian Open, International Championship. Would go on to win the China Open. But the German Masters was right in the thick of that. And I think a lot of people thought he had to be one of the big favourites of the World Championship. Michael Wosley beat him in round one. It just shows you the World Championship is a very different beast. Uh, but to Ding, it seems right that he would win on a big stage like that. And he did. 2015, Mark Selby, Sean Murphy. I remember that final because... Uh, Murphy was 5-2 up. Last frame of the afternoon session, Mark Selby made a classic Mark Selby dish, made a great clearance. And actually, I got, went back to the hotel and uh, he, I got in the lift and he held the door someone was coming towards it. It was Mark Selby. And I could see, he's he, not arrogant enough to say I've got him or anything like that, but I could see he recognised how important that was because it was the last frame of the session. Had they carried on, who knows if it had been significant, but of course Sean had to think about that, and Mark had the sort of psychological edge he knows behind. You get that in these multi-session matches, as, as we've seen certainly with Mark Selby at the, at the World Championship with the Crucible. Um, and that, I'm not saying that's the reason he won, but it was definitely. I mean, had it been six-two, obviously it would have just a fact. It would have been harder to turn around. So the manner in which he won that frame, that kind of defined that final, and he came through to win nine-seven. 2016, Martin Gould. Beat Luca Brassell 9-5, and that was a big win for Martin. Obviously, his first big ranking event win. Sadly, he's had to pull out this year. He's pulled out of the German Masters and the Welsh Open. He's in ill health. We send Martin our best. Um, I remember he said he, he hoped it would be like London buses. You know, you, once one win comes, another follows. It didn't quite work out like that. But as I say, he has experienced ill health, but he's got those uh, golden memories to, to look back on, as indeed, of course, is Anthony Hamilton. And that was... In some ways, I think the most memorable of all the German Masters triumphs, 2017. I actually interviewed, and you can go back and listen to it, I interviewed Anthony that week on the podcast. Uh, 
in Berlin. Um, and he was talking about his sort of disappointment and not winning a ranking event and all the rest of it. He'd taken his parents out to Berlin um, because he wasn't sure if he'd qualify again and he wanted them to see the city. They ended up spending a lot of time in the Temperdrome watching him. And uh, terrific series of wins, of course, in the MB Ali Carter, 960 in the final. I think a lot of people, virtually everyone in the sport, in fact, not even virtually everyone, everyone in the sport was happy to see him win because they recognised what... Uh, Great servant of the sport he'd been. You know, he's a very funny guy, Anthony, very likeable guy. He hadn't won a ranking event. He certainly, I think everyone felt, was good enough to won one. And he did. He won that one. And that was one of the great moments. Probably the standout final in many ways because of the story. 2018, Mark Williams beat Graham Dot 9-1. I seem to remember the final session was something like 27 minutes long. Um, nobody's fault. Well, it was actually Mark's fault. He was just too good. Of course, that was right in the thick of the season where his form had returned. Remember a year before... He wasn't at the Crucible. They had the 40 years parade of champions and that great um, you know, night they put on there. He wasn't there. He hadn't qualified. Stuart Carrington beat him in the qualifying. Wasn't the World Championship. Didn't want to be parading around with the other champions when he wasn't in the tournament. So it looked like, you know, is he majorly in the doldrums? He thought about even packing it in. But as we know, things turned around with the sight right and all, all the rest of it. And that season he won... He'd won the six reds, he won the Northern Ireland Open, he won the German Masters, and of course he went on a few months later to win the World Championship. And I think that performance, 9-1, just underlining the dominance that he had. 2019, Karen Wilson beat Dave Gilbert 9-7. That was, uh, again, a bit of a setback for Dave, who you know looked like he might win his first title. Karen was very strong that night. Um, and, uh, of course, he has a bit of a thing about Germany, doesn't he? He's won... I think, is it four ranking events in Germany? Uh, of the five, he's won in total. So clearly there's something about the place that appeals to him. And then we had two wins for Judd Trump. 2020 beat Neil Robertson, 9-6. At that point, Robertson um, was an, undergoing an unbelievable spell. Uh, he'd Get the timeline right here. He'd, uh, he'd won the, uh, was it the European Masters, yeah, in, in Austria... Then he went straight to Germany, lost in the final there. Then he went to the World Grand Prix in Cheltenham, won that. I remember he turned up at the Welsh. His first match he looked absolutely frazzled, <laughs> as he as he would be entitled to, because this is basically a four-week run. He still got to the quarterfinals somehow, but he, he ran out of steam, understandably. He got, the stamina is an issue, even for someone like him. Uh, but anyway, Judd won that one 9-6. following year, they played in Milton Keynes because of the lockdown. You may remember that shot he played on the green against Barry Hawkins, because he was 5-1 down in the semis. He beat uh, his good friend Jack Lazowski 9-2 in the final. Um, you know, it was, it was one-sided, but also it wasn't in Germany. <laughs> that was the point. So everyone was excited to go back there. 2022, of course, Xiaoxing Tong beat Yan Bingtown 9-0. It's very sad to look back on on those two. What great talents, what great prospects and potential and, and promise that was thrown away because of the match-fixing scandal. Obviously, they're currently suspended. They're young enough to come back. Um... But uh, one thing I'd say about that final, that was straight, that match. <laughs> but people, I know people pointed the finger. That was not one of the ones that was under investigation. Um, and then last year, 2023, Ali Carter beating Tom Ford 10-3. For some reason, the final made longer. Um, but you can't guarantee it still won't be one-sided. And it was. Tom Ford, I know, didn't feel confident going into that final. Um, he had the great win over Jack Lazowski in the semis. Jack probably should have won that match, but he didn't. Ford beat him 6-5, but Ali Carter too strong and a decade on from his first win uh, once again 
he was the victor. Now, that, so that's a brief history, and it, it was brief, but you know, I don't want to take up people, too much of people's time. But uh, this year, we're looking forward to, of course, uh, an expanded event, because it's now seven days as opposed to five. Uh, so the top eight have been held over. We're not quite sure if Ronnie O'Sullivan's going to be there or not. He's supposed to be playing the Belgian beast, Julien Leclerc. And what's significant about that is they're the two fastest players this season on the average shot times. If you look at the average shot times, O'Sullivan 17.4 seconds, Leclerc 17.5. So what we're saying is that match won't last long. Uh, Ali Carter plays Michael White. Well, it might not last long. It might not be on. <laughs> so, it, But I, su- I suspect, obviously, um, if Ronnie were to pull out in good time, there would be a replacement. So if you're on that top-up list, keep your phones on. Ali Carter plays Michael White. Uh, Mark Selby, Marco Fu. That's an interesting one. Uh, but the big one, I think, in the first round, most people would agree, is Judd Trump, Lucas Kleckers. Now, obviously, Kleckers is from Berlin. Uh, it's absolutely brilliant that he gets to play at the Tempodrome. Um, hopefully his match would have been held over anyway, but obviously because he's playing Trump, it is held over. Uh, hard worker, Kleckers, I think everyone knows that. He's put a lot of effort in. I don't think he's from Berlin, is he? He's from Essen, but anyway, he's from Germany, so it's, it's a big deal to be uh, to be playing there. He got to the quarterfinals of the WST Classic last season. He's improved a lot. He's had to come back through the Q School. It's very hard to stay on tour. 76 in the world rankings, so you know he's in that position where he's trying to push for a top 64 spot. Not easy playing Trump, obviously, but it's going to be a great occasion, and you know you just know the crowd are going to turn out for that and support them. It's a little bit awkward at that venue. The, the, the main table that we see on TV is right in the middle of a big arena, so the crowd actually are much closer to the outside tables, and, and I do sometimes wonder where you look as an audience member, you know, what you focus on. So sometimes you'll see a great shot on the main table that we watch on TV and there's kind of no applause because people are watching something else. But uh, that's going to be a great occasion. Uh, just some of the other matches. Neil Robertson, Sanderson, Lamb. Of course, Lamb has beaten Robertson this season. And we're going to round two because it has been pre-qualifying for those outside the top eight. Uh, some good matches here as well. Right? Stephen Maguire, Joe O'Connor. You know, this sort of match you wouldn't want to call. Zhang Ander's has got Tepchara and New. It's another interesting one. Uh, and uh, Mark Williams, former winner against her, Gyo Kwang, who's made such a great impact on his debut season. Anyway, all these matches will be available, uh, or most of them anyway, on Discovery Plus, and we're also on Eurosport next week. And uh, I'd love to hear from anyone who's going, particularly if you're going for the first time, let us know what you think, because I think what you'll find is we hear about sort of merchandise stands and so on and, and all that stuff. All of that is there in, in Berlin. There's a great sort of... It is like a festival of snooker. You know, it's not just about the arena. Backstage is always buzzing with people. Whoever you bump into there, they want to talk about snooker. They're interested in snooker. And they want to, you know, share their passion with like-minded people. And it's, in a way, if you want to do that, this is the perfect event to go to. Um, so if you are going, whether you're in Germany or, or from outside... Do let us know and enjoy the week. And it's a big week. Of course, Judge Trump uh, is likely to wrap up the Bet Victor bonus series, the European series bonus, 150,000, because he's so far in front of everyone else. He could actually win it there rather than it going to the last event at the Welsh Open. Um, just underlining, of course, what a, what a great season he's had. But uh, I think the... The players, obviously, you know, very important, but in some ways, this event is about the fans, and it's the atmosphere they create. You very rarely hear a mobile phone go off. You don't hear inappropriate shouting out, any of that stuff. It's just a great a venue and a great tournament because of the, the snooker fans who go there. So, 
do enjoy it uh, wherever you're watching and uh, that is it for this week who knows when we'll be back we might be back next week we might not be we might be back twice next week it's a it's a fluid situation keep the emails coming in because that's that's most of it let's be honest uh snooker scene podcast at mail.com that's snooker scene podcast at mail.com we're members of the sports social network all the rest of that uh but that's it for now Oh, I'm one thing I meant to mention, I should have mentioned this at the start. The ITV4 figures were fantastic from the World Grand Prix. 1.3 million the peak for the evening session. It beat Channel 4 and Channel 5. For those outside the UK, you know, we talk about these channels. Essentially, most people growing up, there were, well, it depends how old you were. But let's say, if you grew up in the 1980s, there were four television channels in Britain. BBC One, BBC Two, ITV and Channel 4. Towards the end of the 80s and the 90s, satellite television came in and if you could afford to pay for it, you could get a satellite dish and there were hundreds of other mainly obscure channels, but some of them became more mainstream. Channel 5 arrived as another terrestrial channel and then eventually we moved to digital television and there's a service called Freeview, so you, if you've got a television you can access you know, a few hundred channels, again many of them obscure there's also pay television where there's hundreds more channels. So there's lots and lots of channels. So for any channel, and I mean any channel, to be getting a million viewers in this crowded marketplace is really impressive. It's the highest ever snooker figure on ITV4. The previous best was from the same tournament, the 2017 World Grand Prix final between Barry Hawkins and Ryan Day. Now people have said, I understand why they say, oh, well, Ronnie, it's Ronnie O'Sullivan who's brought these people in. It's not quite right, I don't think. I think Ronnie O'Sullivan does bring more viewers. But put it this way, since that 2017 final until this week, he'd won six other tournaments on ITV that hadn't got this figure. So if it's about him, why, why, wasn't, why weren't there so many people watching? I think it's undoubtedly true there's been a massive uptick in interest in snooker over the last year or so. I think Ronnie is part of that, and certainly the success he's had recently has helped drive more interest. But that's not the only reason. There's a general increase. There was an increase, for example, in the British Open figures, which he didn't play in, the Scottish Open, which he didn't play in, um, the shootout as well. So interest is up, and that's great. It's up in terms of live ticket sales. It's up in terms of viewing figures. Um, and there are various factors, better promotion, it, it, just interest on the table. I think sports do have their sort of fashionable periods, and I think snooker at the moment has entered has entered that. I think Luca winning the World Championship, Luca Brussel, I think that was a big thing as well, that kind of the excitement that that created has, has sort of tipped over to the next season. But whatever the reasons, it's great. And actually the afternoon sessions were really well watched as well. Even the, the Sunday afternoon where there was no finish, that got 700,000. Uh, 1.3 million is a fantastic figure in the evening. And uh, long may it continue. And I'm sure hopefully the German Masters will also, uh, also be uh, well viewed by the public and it also gives slightly gives the lie to the idea that people only watch three tournaments they clearly don't do they <laughs> if, if, if over a million people are watching that final it's because they're attracted by by that tournament and by that story and yeah brilliant sunday night is probably the hardest night to get any audience because it's where the other big shows are on the other networks but the fact is they got over a million and uh, that's fantastic so i wanted to flag it we've ended on a high which is good and we will be ending there, so thank you for listening. More next week, but from now, from us all here, and when I say from us all, I mean from me, <laughs> goodbye-bye. Sports Social Podcast Network.